two months ago, educators and Jewish leaders sounded the alarm on what they were calling an outbreak of anti-Semitism on our college campuses. And they spoke out against faculty and students who displayed what they called a complete lack of empathy following the Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel on the 7th of October. America is at a crossroads. The question is clear. Will we obey the word of God and believe what God says concerning Israel, or will we continue to equivocate and sympathize with Israel's enemies? We saw just a few days ago on December 5th a horrifying reality when some of our so-called elite university presidents at Harvard, MIT, and UPenn were questioned by Congress regarding their views on anti-Semitism. I'm going to play a little bit of their remarks for you today and dig into this issue. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Well, this is a heavy topic today, but I've been watching, I'm sure as a lot of you have been, uh, what's happening in the United States and the rise, the alarming rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States. Back on October 16th, a lot of the headlines began to read that our elite universities were beginning to show anti-Semitism and hosting anti-Israeli rallies and supporting the terrorist attacks on Hamas. But this past Wednesday, the controversy hit a fever pitch when Representative Elise Stefanik asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews on campus violates the university's code of conduct as it relates to bullying and harassment. I want you to listen in as Ms. McGill at Penn and Harvard University's President Claudine Gay both offered narrow legal responses during a congressional hearing, saying it depended on the context. McGill responded that it was a context-dependent decision. Gay also said it depended on the context, such as being targeted at an individual. Listen to what they had to say. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your testimony that you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if if the speech becomes conduct, It can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. So this is Representative Stefanik 
questioning UPenn's president, Liz McGill. And since this has happened just a few days ago, of course, there have been a number of calls for her to resign. And in fact, by the time this podcast airs, there's a possibility that she will have already resigned as well. She should resign in disgrace, as should the president of MIT and also the president of Harvard University. Listen to what the president of Harvard had to say when asked if calling for the genocide of Jews goes against Harvard's policy. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When and it is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. So Ms. Stefanik is absolutely right on this when she says that they should resign across the board, but it belies something that's even more sinister that's happening in the United States. And it's not just our universities. This is happening in our high schools. It's happening in community college campuses around the country. And I would venture to guess that there are many more students coming out of our community colleges than are coming out of these elite universities. And if you are an alum of some of these universities, if you are giving money to these universities, I would hope that that is stopping immediately, if not sooner, because what we see happening in the United States with regard to our our treatment of Jews, our tolerating of the anti-Semitic remarks that are coming from these elite university presidents should send a shiver up the spine of every person in this country who understands why it is so important that we never allow this to take root in the United States. Of course, Harvard President uh, Claudine Gay apologized for remarks that she made during her testimony for Congress. I certainly hope that it's a day late and a dollar short. I hope she ends up having to Uh, resign in disgrace for saying that it would depend on the context of the in of the individual and of the uh, incident. Listen, there is no context in which calling for the genocide of Jews or any other race of human beings across this world is ever appropriate. There is no context in which that would ever be appropriate. But when asked to give a yes or no answer, Gay said that Semitic speech could warrant action only if the conduct crossed into bullying, harassment, or intimidation. So when someone calls for the genocide of the Jews, apparently at Harvard, they think that's okay. I am concerned. I'm alarmed by this. And I hope that as Christians in particular, we understand the importance of siding with God when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the Middle East, especially when it comes to uh, Israel. Israel are God's chosen people, and we have been told over and over and over in the Bible that we are to stand 
with God's people. He said, if you condemn Israel, God will bless those who bless Israel and he will curse those who curse Israel. And it's shocking to me that we are allowing this kind of conduct and this kind of speech calling for the genocide of an entire group of people uh, to be permitted here in the United States. There is a wonderful uh, article, and I'll link back to it in the show notes today over at charismanews.com, talking about why Christians should support Israel. And one of the very first things that they say in this article is that Israel is the only nation created by a sovereign act of God. We know because the Bible teaches us that nations rise and fall, that nations Nations are judged for the conduct of the leadership of those nations. God judges nations, but Israel belongs to God himself. As a creator of heaven and earth, we read in Genesis chapter one, God had the right of ownership to give the land to whomever he chose. And God gave the title deed for the land of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, according to Genesis 15, 18, forever. Ishmael, who's the father of the Arabs, was excluded from the title deed to the land in Genesis 17, starting in verse 19 and ending in verse 21. And so therefore, the modern day Palestinians have no biblical mandate to own the land. The boundaries of the state of Israel are recorded in scripture, and the boundaries are further described in Ezekiel chapter 47, 13 through 28, and all of chapter 48 of the book of Ezekiel. When God established the nations of the world, he began with the nation of Israel. The second thing they pointed out is that Christians owe a debt of eternal gratitude to the Jewish people for their contributions, which gave uh, Christians Christ. It gave the birth of Christ to the Christian faith. Paul recorded in 1527 of the book of Romans, for the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, talking about the Jews. Their duty is also to minister to them in the material things. Jesus Christ a prominent rabbi from Nazareth said, salvation is of the Jews in John chapter four, verse 27. Consider what the Jewish people have given to Christianity. They've given us the scriptures, the prophets, the patriarchs, Mary and Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, the 12 disciples, the apostles. It is not possible to say, I am a Christian and do not love the Jewish people. The Bible teaches that love is not what you say, rather it is what you do. And we read this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, there will be a lot of people as we come into the Christian uh, Christian remembrance of the birth of Christ, right? We're at Christmas time right now who will deny that Jesus was Jewish and they will, they will celebrate Christmas from sunup to sundown and they will carry on with their anti-Semitism and we will continue to see this on our university campuses until we say no more. I am continuing to be uh, shocked and amazed at what we put up with in this upside down world that we're living with, not the least of which is putting up with the continuing remarks that men can become women and women can become men, that there is no such thing as absolute truth, which we know, of course, to be wrong on its face. There is such a thing as absolute truth. And the Bible teaches us that we are to be ambassadors of the living God. And if we are if we are called to be as ambassadors, as if Christ were making his appeal through, as if, as if God were saying, come back to me, that of course starts with the people of God, the nation of Israel. Christians are to support Israel because it brings the blessings of God to us personally. In Psalm 126, verse six, King David commands all Christians 
Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. This scriptural principle of personal prosperity is tied to blessing Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. One only has to wonder what's going to happen here in the United States as our affection for Israel becomes unmoored from the foundations of the country that we call home. And I know because I, I have been watching what's happening here in the Pacific Northwest and on college uh, campuses around uh, where I live, not the least of which is the University of Washington and what we're seeing demonstrations happening in the Seattle area. We know that anti-Semitism is on the rise and the church has a responsibility, an obligation, and indeed a command to speak up against it. God judges the Gentiles according to God's word for abusing the Jews. In Exodus 17, we read about the story of the Amalekites who attacked the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt en route to the promised land. Because the Amalekites, who by the way were descendants of Esau, whom God hated, attacked the Jewish people, God promised to be at war with Amalek for generations to come. So where is the Roman Empire? Where are the Greeks? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Turks? Where's the Ottoman Empire? Where is Adolf Hitler and his goose-stepping Nazis? They're all footnotes in the bone yard of history because they all made a common mistake. They attacked the Jewish people and God Almighty, God himself, brought them to nothing. I dare you to find uh, a member of the Ottoman Empire. I dare you to find a Babylonian or a Turk. You can't find any of them, but you can sure find the Jewish people. And that will always be the case. God promises to punish the nations that come against Israel. As we move uh, closer and closer to the end times in this country, the Bible actually teaches us that at some point, all nations will come against Israel and God himself will come down to defend her. And uh, I don't believe I'm going to be around for that. I sure hope not. <laughs> but I'm telling you right, right now, as as believers and uh, as honestly, as human beings, as, as uh, citizens of the United States and people who have enjoyed the blessings of Western culture, it is a no-brainer to say that for uh, a terrorist organization to breach the borders of an independent sovereign nation such as Israel and attack and kill and maim and rape and murder innocent civilians, this is wrong. But unfortunately, we have fallen into this uh, moral equivalence, this stupid idea that somehow these things are have some sort of moral equivalence. And this is absolutely not true at all. Christians are called to love the Jews and support Israel. And that is exactly what we should be doing. And so as you see what's happening in the universities and as you see what's going on around the country as it relates to how we are treating the Jewish people and the fact that we are allowing these kinds of conversations to fester and support them and that we're seeing that these so-called uh, the so-called academic elites cannot even muster the courage, the moral fortitude to say that to call for the, the annihilation of the Jews, the genocide of the Jewish people is wrong and not contextualize it tells us that we have a massive problem in the United States as it relates to our definition of what we will and will not support in our colleges. I get asked all the time about our favorite books for family devotions, and you guys, it's so good to just read the Bible. It doesn't have to be hard. The Bible in Stories is an excellent tool, and as we head into Christmas, it's a great gift for your children or your grandchildren. It has generational impact when we read the Bible to our kids. The Bible in Stories is for all ages. It's not just a kid's book. It covers 
400 Bible stories has hand-drawn, beautiful, biblically accurate pictures to help you remember what you're reading, and it has a topical index, so you don't have to know the Bible to be able to find what you're looking for. With over 17,000 testimonials, you guys know this is a high-quality product. I think you're going to love it for generations in your family. Go to BibleInStories.com forward slash Heidi and use the coupon code Heidi for a free digital coloring book of the first 50 stories. That's BibleInStories.com forward slash Heidi. And don't forget, use the coupon code Heidi. You guys, I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it. Uh, The public schools and our public universities and our elite universities have become cesspools for uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric. They have become safe havens for uh, the disillusion that is being seen all across the world in the LGBTQIA plus super spirit, you know, uh, apostrophe uh, parentheses group of people. We are watching this now spreading to our young people, and it is up to us to stand up against it and say, absolutely no more. Uh, I got a question from a listener a couple of months ago asking me what I thought about the 2024 elections. And my initial thought was, hey, it's way too early to to be uh, talking about individual candidates, except for to say that we should be listening to individual candidates. And I continue to believe, and uh, my uh, my friend Leslie Llewellyn is going to come on the show uh, either tomorrow or later on this week and be talking to me about her race. She's running for the 3rd Congressional District here in Washington State. This is the same seat that I ran for a couple of years ago. But I want to remind you today that as we continue to see these conversations, both the anti-Semitism that is alive and well in the United States, we must understand our history. We need to understand who we are. We need to understand who the United States is in relationship to Israel. And we need to know and remember again who we are as uh, conservatives and as Republicans in the United States today. There is a movement, and it is called populism. When I ran for Congress, I had heard a little bit about the populist movement, but didn't really understand it. When Mike Pence was still running for president, and uh, I mean, I'm not here to talk about Mike Pence today. That's a whole podcast all by itself. But he said something really interesting with regard to where the country is. And I think that I agree with him. He said it's important for Republicans to know that the Republican Party basically is in trouble. He noted New Hampshire's status in an early primary state, and he said Republican voters face a choice. Will we be the party of conservatism, or will we follow the siren song of populism unmoored to conservative principles? In the speech, Pence argued that the party should be guided by what he saw as longstanding conservative principles hawkish foreign government policy and free market economics rather than a populism that he argued is rising on both the political right and the political left. Uh, Mr. Pence repeatedly invoked the memory of Ronald Reagan calling for a return to what he described as limited government and a, quote, traditional moral value that he said the Republican had stood for for 50 years. Pence warned that the GOP stands at a crossroad and describe populism as a path of decline and irrelevance. So what is populism? I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of it. It's sort of this 
nebulous thing that we hear about, but I think we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. But I've I've been reading up on it a little bit, and I and I find it interesting. I'm seeing more and more of the same verbiage being uh, being put out into the the uh, the blogosphere and places like that when it comes to populism. And Michael Strain wrote about it. He said that populism is a reaction to cultural and economic change, uh, as if governments could control economics or the culture. Really, the government is downstream from culture. I mean, we're in a mess right now, not because we have a messed up government, but because we have a messed up culture. We've moved so far away from the founding principles of this country, so far away from the Judeo-Christian values that made this nation the greatest nation on the face of the earth that we have enjoyed blessing upon blessing upon blessing, the blessings of liberty we have enjoyed in this country for generations, largely because of how the country was founded and God has blessed it. The populist whispers nostalgia, he said, into the public's ear, telling people that times have never been so poor and America could be restored to its previous glory if he dealt with all the source of our country's problems. I thought that was interesting because I believe, and as I'm looking more and more at this, populism is the antithesis of conservatism. It replaces the shining city on a hill that President Reagan talked about with this idea that one person alone can fix the problems that we are facing. And so we pick one person and we decide that one person is the 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 be all and the end all to politics in the United States. And if you can just get behind this one person, this one person will do everything right and will do nothing wrong. And this is going to be the person that fixes all of our problems. But all we have to do is look to the book of Psalms to know that the Bible teaches us that the heart of the human being is desperately evil. And we know because we we are people ourselves how much we need accountability. Our founding fathers knew that. This is why they gave us three branches of government. They were supposed to balance each other out and hold each other accountable. And I'm concerned that we understand what we're talking about when we deal with populism. NPR noted that the definition of populism and the usefulness of the term itself has been widely debated. And so that's why I haven't spoken about it very much on my show. I'm still trying to understand this trend in the United States. But according to Oxford uh, bibliographies, populism is, quote, anti-establishment, anti-elite ideology, and political strategy, which tends to focus on the tensions between so-called pure people and the corrupt elite. Uh, The meaning of conservatism, then, of course, is also the subject of contention. Oxford notes that conservatism is associated with a a right-leaning political movement, which has been defined as defending inequalities and differential entitlements and uh, shoring up public and social order, promoting traditional values and conventional social relationships. Populism, meanwhile, is neither exclusively right-wing or a leftist phenomenon. And it's gained in prominence in the early 2010s with the rise of grassroots movements like the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street on the left. And perhaps the most basic populist idea of all is that people should be trusted more than the elites and are better than the elites, something most post-World War II conservatives, certainly those in elective politics, have believed as well. And I would probably put myself in that category, but I don't know that I would frame it that way. What I am frustrated about is that we have allowed, we the people, 
have allowed ourselves to be run by people who go to office and they stay there for decades and decades and decades and sort of bury themselves into the political class and then therefore become uh, what we look at as our political elites, our, our betters. And I think what resonated with Donald Trump was he came around and said, I'm going to be a voice for the common man. And that part I absolutely get. But this idea that we are not responsible for the outcome of our government, that we are not responsible for shaping the culture that we want to live in and the culture that we want our grandchildren and our children to flourish in gives too much responsibility to one person. And we know that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we want to stay away from the the, uh, the full brunt force of the populist movement and remember, what does it mean to be a conservative? We are trying to conserve what is good and right about this country, to conserve traditional values, to conserve uh, a traditional roles of male and female. And remember that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. And as we've moved away from those things, we've seen a rise in the populist movement. And I'm going to be keeping an eye on this. I hope you guys will keep an eye on it. We have a lot of things to watch as uh, culture is unfolding around us, particularly as we come to the end of 2023 and we look ahead to what's going to happen in 2024. I believe, and you guys have heard me say this before, I think we could potentially be in for a bumpy ride in 2024, but it doesn't change our response. Uh, it doesn't. It shouldn't change how we live as believers. It shouldn't change how we see the world. We should see it through the lens of Scripture. And the Bible teaches us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have both a responsibility and a privilege of bringing the gospel into this broken, dark world, especially right now as we celebrate the birth of our Savior and remind those around us that there is more than this broken world. There is more than the anti-Semitism that we see on the news toward our Jewish brothers and sisters. There is more than uh, than the creeping rise of chemical-induced abortions that are more and more readily available to our young girls. There is more than transgenderism. God has so much more. He has created us with a plan and a purpose. And so while we want to understand the news and we want to understand the culture that we live in and respond appropriately to it, we also do not want to live in fear, but we want to live in wisdom and walk with strength and dignity. I appreciate hearing from you guys. I would love to hear your thoughts on what's happening on our on our college campuses, particularly as it relates to MIT, Harvard, and Penn uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, let me know what you think by reaching out to me at either leaving a review or a comment for this podcast at Spotify or by going to HeidiStJohn.com forward slash Mailbox Monday. Guys, I'm getting ready to do a brand new series over at the Faith That Speaks community. This is more than just uh, a, a little feel-good Bible study where I have you journaling three days a week. We're actually digging into the Word of God, and we're going to study it and learn how to apply it to our everyday lives. This is the mooring that we need. It's the light to our feet and the lamp to our path that God promises His Word is. So if you want to know more about His Word and grow in peace and in wisdom in 2024, join me as we study the Bible over at Faith That Speaks. Com. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening and for leaving reviews for the show. And also, don't forget to send me a Christmas card. You can reach out to me, HeidiStJohn.com, Care Firmly Planted Family at 14001 Northeast 1st 
Avenue in Vancouver, Washington, 98684. Have a great day, everybody, and I will see you right back here again at the intersection of faith, 